working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, Zach Albetta here, and welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. My conversation today is with New Orleans drummer Gerald French. I'm especially excited about this one because Gerald's name has come up in many conversations I've had with New Orleans drummers, including Jamal Watson on this podcast, as someone who has taught and influenced them over the years and who is a standard bearer, not just for traditional New Orleans music, but New Orleans culture in general. Over his career, Gerald has performed with Harry Connick Jr., Charmaine Neville, Dr. John, and the Preservation Hall Jazz Band. His family's musical legacy in New Orleans dates back over a century, and he recently became the leader of the original Tuxedo Jazz Band. With a 107-year history, it is the longest continuously performing ensemble in New Orleans. As always, you can find us at WorkingDrummer.net, where you can check out past episodes, learn more about who we are and what we're about. You can also find a link to our Patreon page, or just go to Patreon.com slash WorkingDrummer if you'd like to contribute a little money each month to help keep the podcast going strong. There are some great incentives there for donations at any level, including t-shirts and stickers, access to bonus content, a free lesson with one of our past guests such as Ben Caesar or Carter McLean or the chance to be interviewed on an episode of Working Drummer. You can donate as much or as little as you see fit, starting at $1 a month, and every donation at any level is greatly appreciated. I'd like to introduce you all to Crush Drums by telling you about one of their new lines. They are offering a brand new birch kit called the Sublime Birch Series. The Sublime Birch is 100% North American birch. Here's Crush's own Terry Platt talking about some of the cool features of the Sublime Birch Series. One thing that Crush has always done is on our 14-inch floor toms, we do a 14 by 13. It's got the fullness and depth of a 14 by 14 tom, but you can also, tuning range-wise, manipulate it to sound more like a 14 by 12 for the guys that, that enjoy that tone as well. It also includes the hoop saver claws that we developed where we actually have the rubber grommet under the claw protruding through the front of the claw. So if somebody grabs their drum set and sets it down, say, on concrete, you know, claw side down, it doesn't scratch up everything. And here's one of my favorite things about what Crush is doing. The bearing edges are cut a little more specifically for the drums. Our standard edge is a, you know, kind of a double 45, and the outside is rounded over so you get some more head contact with the shell. On the bass drum, you'll notice that the resonant side is even rounder than that. And then the uh, batter side's going to be a little bit sharper. Just so you get that nice snap out of the kick, but the resonant head really brings the whole shell into the equation of the tone. You can also find a link to the new Sublime Birch series in our show notes and see the beautiful finishes and configurations they offer. In the near future, we've got much more to share in regard to Crush Drums and this dynamic company. For now, check out Crush Drums at crushdrum.com. So let's get to all things New Orleans with Gerald French. Oftentimes, the the easiest way to start these things off is by talking about the kind of the last thing you did. And uh, by the looks of Facebook, you just returned from your annual Japan trip. Yeah, yeah. So talk yeah, about I that trip and who you do yeah. that with. Uh, it's it's an interesting trip. I've been I've been going on this trip since uh, off and on since nineteen ninety one. I think I've only missed. Uh, Four years and all wow. that time. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, and a couple of them was because I was on tour with either Leroy Jones or with uh, Harry Connick Jr. Mm-hmm. So that's the only reason that I missed that trip. But uh, actually, uh, the trip is actually put on by a um, a uh, association called Ukami-san. Mm-hmm. And basically what it is, is it's their, uh, it's one of their annual fundraisers. And basically it's a, uh, it's a group of, of women who are entrepreneurs hmm. who own their own, who own their own businesses. So every year they sponsor this tour and we go all over, all over Japan, going to the different cities where they have Okami-san and we go and play concerts for these ladies. And that's like one of their big fundraisers throughout the year. And who is we, who is that group that you go with? Uh, it's it's uh, Tom Fisher and the New Orleans All-Stars. So it's uh, Tom Fisher on clarinet, and he's the leader. Uh, most of the time, Charlie Fardella on trumpet, great trumpet player, uh, originally from the New York area, but he's lived here in New Orleans for a long time. Same thing with Tom. Tom was originally from Chicago, mm-hmm. but he's been he married a girl from New Orleans, so he's been living here for almost 30 years. Uh, Tom Hook on piano, another guy who's uh, uh, from the... Um, Kansas City area. Oh, nice. I, I spent yeah. seven years in Kansas City. Yeah, and then he moved to New Orleans, too. Uh, he used to have a band called the Black Dogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they toured a lot on the uh, on more of the Dixieland kind of circuit, mm-hmm. you know, in and around. Uh, and then after that, the rest of the, the, rest of the, the, uh, the guys and gal uh, are from New Orleans. So it was me on drums, uh, Richard Moten on bass. Uh, most of the time, either Fred Lonzo goes on trombone, or we have a young guy up and coming, um, David L. Harris. Hmm. He's out of Baton Rouge, but he plays a lot of gigs here in New Orleans. And uh, David either goes with us on the trip. And the vocalist is Yolanda Robinson. Well, that's a pretty big group. Yeah, it's, it's eight of us. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. is is Richard Moten related to Benny Moten by any chance? Ooh, I don't know. I'd, hmm. I'd have to check that out. Okay. Then, I'd have to check that out. But I know he... He's related to uh, Plas Johnson. Okay, yeah. He's also related to Don Vappi, uh, Thad Richard, and Michael White. They're all cousins. Wow, man, that's yeah. uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about your family, but man, the 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 family thing in New Orleans just runs yeah. deep. Whether it's the musical tradition or the Indian thing, or like oh yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, um, it's so cool. Oh, yeah. Um, so, so that's, is that just a straight ahead kind of trad jazz group that you go there with? Yeah, strictly, strictly New Orleans traditional music. Uh, we play a lot of the, uh, the old, uh, old music because that's what they want to hear. And then, you know, with the vocalists, then they want to hear gospel music and they want to hear, uh, you know, tunes like A-Train and, you know, right. that, that kind of stuff too. So we kind of mix it up. So it's a, it's an eclectic kind of bag of yeah. music, but it's like, you know, Base, the basis of it is New Orleans trad jazz, and then we move into more of the, uh, you know, early swing kind of stuff, big band kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what they like to hear. I'm I'm a big uh, fan of of the HBO show Treme, uh, uh-huh. and that show alluded to how uh, Japanese music fans are are just like fanatical about jazz in general and New Orleans jazz I mean, especially. But, is that I the mean, case? But all over Asia, all over Asia. Wow. I mean, uh, especially in Japan, but all over Asia, they mm. really like New Orleans traditional music, and it's it's funny because, uh, you know, with uh, hip hop being global, 
and you know techno and other kinds of music really being popular with young people it's really strange that in the asian countries that these kids actually have taken the time to learn how to play acoustic instruments mm -hmm. everywhere else and everything is you know let's push a button and make music right you know they right. actually sit down and learn how to play music the way we learn how to play music. yeah you know, from, yeah you know from kids you know yeah. so uh yeah, so it's it's a, it's a it's a different. I mean, there's actually a school there that teaches how to play traditional New Orleans music. Wow, that's, that's just how into New Orleans trad jazz and how they revere the uh, the guys from New Orleans. Mm -hmm. yeah. So when you go there, is it is it strictly performances, or do you do clinics with the band? Is there educational outreach? Uh, I've done some educational stuff. Uh, not so much there. I've done some educational things in Thailand. I've done some educational things in uh, in Korea. But mm -hmm. I haven't, we haven't, over there when we go to Japan, it's usually strictly performance. And, well, that's, I've, I've talked on this podcast before uh, about, you know, doing, doing the clinic thing and mm -hmm. how, you know, clinics and, and educational uh, endeavors are, you know, generally good, but when when I was a kid, and I'm sure when you were a kid, there wasn't really any such thing. Like, you just went to see music. You went to gigs. You went to clubs. You went to right. concerts. Um, right. And, I mean, and, I, I, took, I took private lessons. Right, right. I, it wasn't a situation where, uh, you know, in, I mean, in the 80s, clinics were just starting to kind of become popular. Right. You know, where, you know, guys... You know, now we have a local drum a local drum shop here in New in New actually it's in Kenner, out by the airport, Ray Francis Drum Center. And mm -hmm. they sponsor now, you know, they'll have maybe one or two clinics a year, you know. So they'll bring they you know, they'll bring in like really big name guy yeah. come and do clinics. And it's cool, you know. Yeah. But um, you know, but the drum community here in New Orleans is so deep. I mean, it's I mean it's nice to see the national cats. Right, but we got cats locally that play just as much as them, if not more. Right, right. So you know, so it's like it's cool, but and at the same time, it's like yeah, we got our own thing. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> yeah. and whether you're in New Orleans or not, I I just feel like you know I I can feel myself getting old now. I can feel myself sounding old, and and I've I've uh, developed the opinion that when it comes to exposing young people to music. I think it's better to take them to a concert or take right. take them to a jazz club rather right. rather than take them to you know a clinic or uh, some something specifically designed as an educational outreach thing quote unquote for for young people. Well, well, the the thing with my band is um, I get so many people who come to see my band and they're like, "Well, I never really liked jazz, mm -hmm. but I like what you but I like what you guys." Do. And, you know, the, the thing about New Orleans traditional jazz is it's a it's an interactive kind of thing. Very much. You, know, you, you, you want to get the crowd involved in what, what's happening. And also, you know, it's not it's not so stiff and, you know, ultra serious. It's, you know, it's, it's about having a good time. You know, we play uh, we play people music. We play music that people can dance to, people can relate to, you know, and, uh, you know, and it's. It really feels good when you're sitting there and you're playing songs, you know, and you have people in the audience that are 60, in their 60s, 70s, 80s, 
And, you know, they start tapping their feet. They start clapping. You know, they got a smile on their face, you know, because they're remembering, you know, probably when they heard those songs for the first time, you know, what they were doing yeah. when they heard the songs for the first time. So, um, you know, it's, 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 it's rewarding. Yeah. It's, it's got its own reward. And I, I talked uh, a few months ago with Jamal Watson, um, uh-huh. and uh, we were talking about how you know New, New Orleans is is a song and dance town. And as a as a drummer, if if you don't know how to play behind a song, if you don't know how to support a song, and if you don't know how to play, you know beats and grooves that people want to dance to, you're going to have a hard time in New Orleans. Oh yeah, well I mean, and, and I mean, and also man, you know, pocket is king. Mm-hmm. You know, no matter if you're playing jazz, if you're playing funk or whatever, you know, uh, like Shannon Powell says, another great New Orleans drummer. You know, you know, all chops and no gravy. It's, it's better to have the gravy to make things stick together <laughs> than to have chops. <laughs> you know, and you know, like I said, chops are great. You know, and I, I see these videos with these kids. You know, the gospel chops and. Uh, you know, the the metal drummers, which I think are almost, I mean, it's like... It's superhuman. That's almost, un, it's, it's unhuman, yeah. you know. <laughs> I mean, to see, you know, the speed and the dexterity that these cats have, I mean, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. But in New Orleans... Yeah, that ain't gonna work. <laughs> yeah, it, it reminds me of a, another thing. Uh, Michael Carvin always says, uh, he says, "Don't don't be too hip, because two hips make an ass." Exactly. 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 <laughs> or, or, as, or as my or as my eighth grade teacher used to always say, never assume. Because when you assume, you make an ass out of you and me. There you go. <laughs> I love yeah. it. Um, yeah. So, uh, so speaking of your band, you mentioned your band. Um, this is the original Tuxedo Jazz Band. Right. Right. That's my band. Now. Yeah. I've I was doing a little research um about you and your band and I I I knew it had been around for a long time. I knew that you kind of inherited the leadership role from uh from, you know, older men in your family. But mm-hmm. I I didn't know how far back it went and I found an article that was written uh right as you were taking over leadership of that band about 5 years mm-hmm. ago. Um, yeah, almost. Yeah, it was six years now. Yeah, six right. Years now. Yeah. So it was an article in mm-hmm. Nola dot com, and I'll just read uh, the first two sentences because it blew me away. The one hundred and one year old saga of the original Tuxedo Jazz Band includes only four leaders. On Monday, a fifth takes over. That blew my mind. Um, yeah. So you are you are the fifth leader of the original Tuxedo Jazz Band in a hundred and six years. Yep. <laughs> and and I, and I'm the third person in my family to have leaders. Man, so half so half of half of more than half of the leaders have all been Frenchs. Wow. Okay. So talk about the 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 origins of that band and and how it's tied to your to your family. Well, the band was started uh, as a band in 1910 by Oscar Oscar and uh, he was a free man of color. And he lived in New Orleans. And um, so he started a band. Uh, But before it was the original Tuxedo Jazz Band, it was the original Tuxedo Orchestra, which predates that, which started in 1896. (laughs) Wow. So what happened was the reason that he started the band was because the orchestra was gaining such popularity. And then also at that time, 
it was the uh, it was the heyday of the uh, of the brass band era mm-hmm. in New Orleans, you know. And at that time, brass bands were used for, for everything, not just second lines, funerals, uh, church processions, um, dances, weddings, divorces. So the reason that he started the band was because he also had an offshoot called the the Young Tuxedo uh, Brass Band, which Mm. Greg Stafford is the leader of. So all of these, basically the orchestra broke into two bands Mm -hmm. in order to accommodate what was going on at the time. And then they would have certain, like they would play for carnival balls or carnival organizations, they would put both bands back together and it would be the Tuxedo Orchestra. Mm. But it kind of split the band in half. So, so, the, brass, so the the younger guys were the brass band, the older guys were the stage band. And the brass band lives on as well, yes? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Brass band's still going too. That's amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. Um yeah. Okay, and so talk about your your family members and, and your uh it, it was your uncle and your grandfather that were leaders. Right, right. Well my grandfather took over the band in nineteen fifty five. Okay. Um but he was a member of the band for I think about 20 years prior to that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, through the late, late forties, probably is when, or early forties is when he, mid forties where he actually kind of joined the band. And um, so um, he was actually in the band with Papa Celestine. Hmm. And when Papa Celestine got sick, a uh, trombone player took over uh, for a while. And uh, that was Mr. Uh, oh God, Mr. Mr. Ridgely was his name, and I think he's actually kin to some of the R and B Ridgleys, hmm. like Tommy Ridgely and those those guys who live uh, in Shrewsbury, Louisiana, which is kind of between New Orleans and Metairie kind of thing. Okay. Uh, and then after that, once Papa passed on, my grandfather took over the band. And your grandfather was Albert Papa Fletcher. And he played banjo? Banjo. Banjo. Yeah. Banjo and guitar. Yeah. And he was a hell of a singer. He was, <laughs> yeah, he, he sang his ass off. Uh, and then when my, my uh, grandfather had it for 22 years and he passed in 1977. Mm-hmm. And then when he passed, my Uncle Bob took over as the leader of the band. Mm-hmm. And at that time, uh, my grandfather actually did like some really, um, really impressive things uh, in, in my eyes and as, I mean, in, in anybody's eyes that really knows. A lot of people don't know the story. My grandfather was the first black man to actually have a club on Bourbon Street. Wow. He owned a club? So, yeah. Hmm. yeah. I mean, he rented a space, but he owned the club. Mm-hmm. And it, was called, it was called Tradition Hall, which was the name of the club. And it was actually uh, set up just like Preservation Hall, mm-hmm. but it featured you know, the black musicians, just like Preservation Hall did. But the house band was the original Tuxedo Jazz Band. Hmm. And they played there six nights a week. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. man. That's, yeah. you know, yeah. one of the things we talk about on the podcast is is just, you know, the the endless number of ways that you can make a living and piece gigs together. But, man, that racket of, like, owning a club and just playing there six nights a week... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that sounds like yeah. the way to go, man. <laughs> that, that's that's and I and, and I'm I'm getting to the point where I think I'm I'm gonna 
have to revise that. <laughs> you know, we work we work we work a lot as a band. You know, our regular gig is on Monday nights at the uh, at the Ross and Esther Hotel, at the Jazz Playhouse. Mm-hmm. And uh, and like I said, I've been there now uh, going on six years. Uh, this December, we're going to celebrate 107 years of existence. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. So uh, you know, so but it's time to start doing start start doing some other things, you know. And I like to actually start touring with the band, you know, trying to uh, get a, a decent booking agent where we can actually start doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, I was I was going to ask are are there some um, are there some goals that the band in its century plus history uh, has yet to achieve, or some goals that previous leaders never considered, like things that you want to do with this band that that have never been done musically or well, otherwise. Well, musically, uh, I have some uh, I have some new material that I've written. So I'm going to actually the third album, the second album, I'm going to release later on next year. Mm-hmm. But after that, I'm going to start working on some new on some new tunes, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one thing that's kind of missing in the new in the new artist tradition. Uh, besides, you know, guys like Michael White, nobody's really writing any uh, new tunes. And there's a couple there's a couple other guys that are writing new tunes. Uh, Don Vappy's doing some nice stuff. Uh, and also uh, piano player, the piano player that I work with on Tuesday and Thursday nights at Fritzel's uh, named Richard Scott. He's writing some very nice, nice tunes too. And another guy, uh, Joe Kennedy, who actually plays piano with the Dukes of Dixon. He's, he's writing some, some pretty good stuff too. Cool. So I'm, I kind of want to get into that vein as well. You know, actually writing some, some new, new material that maybe, you know, in a hundred years from now, somebody else will be playing. My right. Tunes. Right. And and when you say writing new tunes, you're talking about writing original songs in the tradition right. of in a, in a tradition, the New Orleans right. Dixie exactly. thing. Exactly. I think I think that's so important, man, because the you know, the, the standards that everybody knows are they're gonna be around no matter what. And right. and everybody's exactly. gonna play those. They're you know, and they're great songs. But mm-hmm. but you and know that's why they, and that's why they're still playing them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but even if you only do it like you know, one or two songs a set or one or two songs a night. Like, I think it's so important for, for musicians, especially in tradition laden genres like mm-hmm. New Orleans music mm-hmm. or trad jazz to, to say, here is my mm-hmm. original contribution, you know, beyond, right. beyond exactly. my solo. Um, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's cool. So, yeah. I got a couple of new tunes up my sleeve. You know? <laughs> It's, 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 it's pretty good. It's right. Pretty good. And and you yourself are a hell of a singer. I've, you know, I've seen you. Well, You're, I, I try. I try. Yeah. I, try. Uh, I, I get it. I get it from my dad and I get it from my grandfather, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, my dad is, my dad is, I mean, nobody sings like my dad, <laughs> you know, uh, he's, uh, he's a New Orleans equivalent of, uh, of, uh, of a Joe Williams or a Lou Rawls. Mm. You know, my dad is, he, he's, he's smooth as silk. You know? <laughs> he, he's uh, 74, about to be 75. Yeah. Uh, still in great shape. Still plays bass great. Still, uh, and still sounds good vocally, you know. Yeah. Really sounds good. Yeah. So speaking of singing, I, um, I also interviewed uh, Jameson Ross. Um, uh-huh. and, uh, you know, and talked with him about how he kind of marries the, the disciplines of, of drumming and singing. Um, mm-hmm. did, did those two things always go hand in hand for you or did, did one come first? Well, the drums came first. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always run from singing. Uh, I can remember, uh, being in groups and bands in high school where they knew I could sing and they wanted me to sing and I would. I would just lose it. I just couldn't. 
I couldn't, uh, I just couldn't stand up there and sing, you know, without being behind the drums, uh-huh. you know. And uh, now I don't have that fear anymore. But when <laughs> I was a kid, oh man, I was terrified to be, to be, uh, to be out front, yeah, and to be singing like that. Now I don't have a problem with it. Anymore. Yeah, I'm good. And how did you go about, uh, just from a practical standpoint, a coordination standpoint, was it hard to, to combine those two things? Very hard. I mean, because a lot of times you're singing phrases that are totally against what you're playing. Right. You know, so, uh, you know, if it's easy uh, as a drummer to play what you sing or to mimic what you sing on the drums, mm-hmm. that, 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 that's not a problem. But when you're singing phrases that are, have nothing to do with what you're playing mm-hmm. that's when you know you got to kind of get that brain separation happen, <laughs> you know so you can concentrate on one thing and then still be able to do another right so yeah, it, 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 it took me a minute to 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 get it but now that i've got it you know it, it's natural yeah and did you like did you have to spend a lot of time in a room by yourself making mistakes oh, yeah. on that oh, like yeah. oh yeah yeah practicing it and Doing it and then also, you know, doing it on the gig and, you know, crashing and burning on the gig. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely trial and error. Yeah. Definitely trial. What, what are your favorite songs to sing? Oh, shit. Um, I like all kinds of stuff. I like to sing, uh, I like to sing a lot of the New Orleans traditional stuff and I change the words and make them dirty songs. <laughs> Actually, actually another, kind of another great New Orleans tradition. <laughs> yeah, which is which is kind of funny. And I also like singing. Uh, also like singing ballads, you know, mm-hmm. because uh, people don't expect it, you know. Right. Um, I was on a gig at the uh, at the Palm Court one night, and uh, I sang La Vie Rose, you mm. know. And the trumpet player turned around and he was like, "Man, I didn't know you. I didn't know you knew that song. You killed it." I'm like. Yeah, you know, <laughs> some of us don't just sit around all day just chilling, you know. So <laughs> put in some work. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And uh and my thing is, man, you know, a lot of guys um when they come to town they wanna take private lessons with me and uh also teach at the New Orleans traditional jazz camp, which is a camp. Uh, every year put on by Bonnie Gibson mm-hmm. and uh, also by uh, Miss Leslie Cooper. And, uh, and um, we teach the traditional music of New Orleans, like for one week. And we have people come from all over the world. We have people come as far as like from Argentina, hmm. come to New Orleans to come and hang out for a week and learn how to play this music and learn how to play it the right way. Yeah. So, you know, I get a lot of requests you know, for students and stuff like that. And it's cool. It's not a problem. But, you know, for any kind of music, you have to live it, especially if you really want to, you really want to play it and you really want to be a part of it. You, you got to spend some time here in New Orleans and really absorb what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Really what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's, it's not just about absorbing the music and, and seeing, the, the musicians and the clubs and the and the songs and and all of those things that make up the New Orleans musical tradition. I think it's also about just like you said, just spending time in New Orleans and kind yeah. of absorbing the vibe and the pace of that city 
and how you know like the the role that music plays in that city because it's yes. it plays a different role in New Orleans than it does in, oh, yeah. in a lot of cities. Oh, yeah. Well, um, like I said, you know, New, New Orleans is the most northern part of the Caribbean. <laughs> you know, we 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 got we got another thing happening. Here. It's, yeah. it's not like it's not like the rest of America. It's a little different. I want to talk about some of the other gigs that, that keep you busy um, and the the first two names that kind of popped up as, as your regular things were uh, Charmaine Neville and the Dixie Cups. Okay. Are those yeah. both still uh, active? I, I played with Charmaine um, for 14 years mm. straight. Um, and uh, the only reason I left the band was because my Uncle Bob health started to fail and I went to take over Tuxedo. Oh, I didn't. That, I yeah. I, th- I thought you were still kind of it continued to play with Charmaine. Uh, I still it, play with I still play with her sometimes. Okay, some not as often as I would like, but I still do some gigs with her sometimes, and and even travel with her sometimes. Yeah, but yeah. not as much as I would like to. So uh, the that, the schedule the that, schedule of the Tuxedo Jazz Band when you took over leadership of that kind of clashed with Charmaine's thing. Yeah, I when, see. You, when you yeah when you become the boss and you're responsible for seven other people, it <laughs> kind of uh, it kind of changes things. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, talk about that for a second. I mean, had you led a band before you took over the Tuxedo Jazz Band? Well, I've had other bands that I've been involved in and I've I've led, uh, but. Not to this degree, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, I'm I'm the boss. You know, it's like you know, you you're in charge of payroll, you're in charge of taxes, mm-hmm. you're in charge of uh, logistics. You know what I'm yep. saying? When it's time for gigs, uh, scheduling, advance, all that. Exactly, exactly. Oh. Uh, also, uh, you know, booking plane tickets. Making sure people are at the airport on time. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's a situation where we can drive, making sure, you know, you can get the van, you can get whatever and, you know, get to the gig. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a totally different animal. Yeah. This, this, this venture compared to, I mean, I have another band, uh, which is like. I, I like to describe it as the meters on acid. Um, <laughs> what is uh, that band? <laughs> it, it's, it's called Abstract. Abstract. Man. And uh and we um uh, you know it's four pieces, guitar, bass, drums, keyboard. And uh, you know, we play a lot of um funky New Orleans kind of stuff. But our guitar player, he's a shredder, man. He used to uh he comes from a country and western background. He used to play with Merle Haggard, but uh he's a he's a chicken picker, so <laughs> uh that's why I said it's like on acid. It's, it's like, you know, it's like having it's like having the meters with Prince as the as the lead guitar player. <laughs> yeah, it's it's, oh, it's a little different. It's a little different. It's a little different. And th- is that band active? Oh yeah, we're still active. We we still do things. Man. Actually, we uh we uh we're contemplating doing a third record. That's that's the next thing that we got going. I think actually we're going to do it as a tribute. We just lost our organist. He uh he passed away recently. Uh, mm-hmm. Mark Adams. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, for a while there, we had five members instead of four. So now we're back down to four. Yeah. So yeah. it is what it is. And then also, I've worked many gigs with Mark, but Mark also was the organist for uh, for the Dixie Cups. Okay. I yeah. See. So uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 been a little rough rough year this year for the the music community here. Yeah. Little, yeah. We've been lo- we've been losing some soldiers, you know. Mm. 
it it happens in every town, man. And uh, of course, I just course. I talked to um, uh, a New York drummer named uh, Gintus Janisonis recently, and they okay. they recently lost a, a a bassist that was you know near and dear to the community. Not not a famous guy, but just played all over, right. and, you know, right. on the right. scene constantly. And and that's well, that's what cats don't understand, man. And uh, you know, it's, and it's also something that I try to impress upon my students that you know I. I play music because I love music. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not trying to get rich, not trying to be famous. I just do what I do and I enjoy what I do, mm-hmm. you know, and I make a decent living at what I do. I'm, I'm cool with it. Yeah, yeah. You know, but, you know, but it's, it's you know, a lot of um, a lot of guys come into this, you know, thinking that, you know, they're going to be the next Tony Williams or they're going to be the next Dennis Chambers or whatever. And it's like it, it ain't even about that. It's, right. It's, no. Yeah. You know, and it's, you know, it's 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 and for me, it's um, it's keeping history going. Mm-hmm. You know, and and being um, and being um, being a soldier. You know, and just keeping things in line. Yeah, know, and make sure that things, uh, as far as New Orleans concerns, you know, is still on the map and it's still ever present you're still letting people know that you know hey the music in new orleans is not dead it's, it's still alive yeah it's still, yeah it's still changing you know and it's and, it's uh, about having soldiers with you too like i think part oh, you know yeah. Oh, yeah. A, the, the biggest part for me of of enjoying a career in music is the people that i play with you know exactly. it's not just exactly. the music itself i you know i lived in la for five years and and i mm. i made i made a few really good friends there i formed a few deep musical relationships but mm-hmm. since since coming to Atlanta, uh, I, I feel so much more of a sense of of community in in the music scene and and feeling like I found a tribe to be a part of, you know. Okay, and that's well, it's and it's it's led to me having more fun playing music here than I ever have. Okay. And I think it's well, it's great. it's got to be the same thing in New Orleans. Like you have a community. Uh, yeah. It's yeah, we got a community, man. I mean, it's it's. I mean, like I said, and um, we're just trying to make sure that this thing just it keeps going. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, no matter, I mean, there, there are a lot of diehards, mm-hmm. you know, and the beautiful thing is, like I said, the people from other countries who really love this music, you know, and really love uh, the people from New Orleans. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, man, we get, we get treated so well, you know, when we're overseas and when we're touring, you know, and it, it, it means a lot. And it, it's, it really means a lot that people really appreciate what you do, you know, and 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 it, it's, it's fulfilling in itself. It really is, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but a lot of times, um, like I said, you know, guys come into playing music and they they're thinking about being stars, and it's it's. It's, it's, it's not about that. It's right, about right. And in terms of, of, you know, continuing the tradition and and keeping the music you love alive and, and moving forward, is that something you're optimistic about? Is that something that you feel like the odds are against you, but you carry on anyway? Uh, what's your outlook uh, on that? My outlook on it is this. Um, and we were talk, we've been talking about this a lot lately in my band. Mm. You know, uh, At one time when I would go to gigs, I would always be the youngest person on the bandstand. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm kind of in the middle. <laughs> I'm kind of in the middle, yeah. you know? 
And uh, and my thing is, um, there's something that needs to happen here in New Orleans. Uh, and um, what I mean by that is that uh, no disrespect to anybody and the programs that they have established now, but we need to establish another music program that teaches the traditional music of New mm. Orleans. Because it's... Uh, it's not that it's getting lost. It's just that it, it's getting diluted. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is there's certain musical traditions, there's certain musical things that need to be impressed upon the young kids who want to play this music and you know idolize the musicians that do play this music. But we need to work hand in hand with those kids to make sure that when we're gone, that this thing is still happening. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? You know, and like I said, no disrespect to any of the programs that are in place, but they don't teach traditional New Orleans music. Mm-hmm. That's the reason why I'm on the faculty of the traditional New Orleans jazz camp, because that's all we play this traditional New Orleans music. Right. Yeah, and I think that it's and like I said, and no disrespect to Coltrane or Miles or, you know, any of the other stuff that people are playing in other jazz programs. Mm-hmm. But you know, in New Orleans, we need to teach our music. We need right. to teach our culture. We need to teach, you know, I mean, even if it's a, you know, if we could open up a vocational school where we teach, you know, how to cook New Orleans food, <laughs> you know, how to play New Orleans music, you know? Man, I would sign up for that in a New York minute. You know, I'd be there. Yeah, you know, <laughs> New Orleans, you know, New Orleans second line, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you know, the real history of the, of the Mardi Gras Indians, you know, I mean, these are things that, you know, need to be passed down. Right. Yeah. And it's it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, but like you don't you don't want to discourage anyone from learning other types of music and, no, and no, all but no, but when it comes enough. to when it comes to New Orleans music, if you're gonna play New Orleans music, play it right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's all I'm saying. And my thing is, you know, um, you know, I a lot of my um, my counterparts you know, went to NOCA, they went to UNO, they went to Loyola, they went to, you know, the schools here in New Orleans. I, I had that at home. I didn't, hmm. I didn't, I didn't need to do that. You know? Right. You know, my grandfather, I lived in the house, uh, 2720 and 2722 Robert Street. Mm-hmm. And, uh, right off of Claiborne Avenue. And, um, my grandmother and my grandfather lived downstairs. I lived upstairs with my mother and father. Hmm. So, uh, needless to say, I spent a lot of time because my dad was, you know, my dad's a bass player, gigging musician. My mom was a nurse, hmm. you know. So, when during the day, I would spend time with my dad. At night, either I was with my mom or I was downstairs with my grandparents. Mm-hmm. Or, with, or with my mother's parents in another part of New Orleans. So, I got the traditional music, being around my grandfather, watching him practice and play. You know, also my grandfather was an entrepreneur besides owning the club. He also owned houses. Hmm. He was an excellent he was an excellent house painter. And that's the other thing that uh a lot of the older musicians did. They didn't just play music at night. They also had day jobs too. Right. You know, like the like the Humphrey brothers, they sold insurance. <laughs> <laughs> and then play music at night. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, um, 
like Tootie Montana. Tootie Montana was a was a uh, was a mason. You know, he mm. could lay bricks. You know, and do tile work and you know all this stuff. So you know, a lot of these cats had vocational skills as well as you know the music or the Indian or the second line stuff that you would see them doing. You know, at nighttime, right? They had other stuff that they did during the daytime. Do you, you feel know? like that's coming back around? Do you feel like more musicians in today's economy are are you know have have some kind of vocation that they do in addition to well, to I mean, music? What, well, my thing is, uh, if you're not married and you don't have two streams of income, you gotta do something. Mm. You gotta do something. Yep. You know, for me, you know, for me, uh, you know, I'm single again, so. <laughs> but uh, but um, yeah, so it's like yeah, if you're gonna have a family, then you, you yeah you, you got to do something else. Mm. You know, for me is it was it's, it's always been teaching. Right. You know, I was assistant band director at uh, St. Mary's Academy, which is a local all girls Catholic high school here. Mm-hmm. You know, so I would teach music during the day. I played gigs at night. You know, and that's the way I supported me and my wife, you know, me and my family. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yes, yeah, so, I mean, if, you, if you're going to have a family, if you're going to, you know, or you're just a person who likes really nice stuff, you need more than one, 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 one stream of income. If you're a person yeah. who really likes stuff. <laughs> yeah, you really like nice stuff. Yeah, that's nice great. Stuff, nice stuff. Mm. So I mean, it is what it is, you know. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I I don't see too many. I mean, and there's a lot of guys that do have other jobs besides playing music, you know, besides being a teacher uh, or whatever. You know, uh, there's a couple of musicians I know that you know worked in the post office. Yeah. Worked post office during the day to play music at night. Mm-hmm. You know? So I mean, it, it goes hand in hand. You know, sometimes you got you have to do. Both. Yeah. And, you know, when I was younger, I used to I used to kind of look down on on guys like that because, you know, my, my goal has always been to be a full time musician. Um, right. And, you right. know, I, I, I have been that, I think, for most of my adult life. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, the older I get and, and the more I kind of uh, get to know other musicians and, and what adult life is really like. I, you know, I realize that whether whether a guy is full time or part time or, or whatever has nothing to do with anything, really, whether, uh, you know, about, no. about their character, about their ability as musicians. Oh. It, like, you know, some some guys, that's the best choice for them, whether it's financially or psychologically. Some people just don't want right. to deal with the psychological burden of being a full time musician. And they're like, I just want to mm-hmm. play. I want to enjoy it and not worry about money. And uh, the older right. I get, the, the more I understand that. <laughs> Exactly, exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, you know, New Orleans is one of the few places where, you know, you can make a decent living, you know, being a musician and not have to stress so much about money because the cost of living is not that bad. Mm-hmm. It's getting it's getting worse, but it's still compared to the rest of the country. You know, if, if you if you make, you know, thirty five, forty thousand dollars a year, I mean, you can live like a king in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. You know, especially if you live a little bit outside of New Orleans, where your money goes a lot further. You know, ten, fifteen minute drive away from New Orleans, you know, it's a lot more economically feasible. Yeah, I think so in in addition to having uh, other streams of income and other types of work, I think that's another thing that musicians are starting to warm up to 
instead of saying like I'm going to go to New York or I'm going to go to LA, I think a lot of guys are saying I'm I'm going to stay right here where I grew up or I'm going to go to Seattle or Kansas City or Austin where right. the cost of living is way lower and, right. and it's right. easier to be a full-time musician. Like you can make exactly. enough money to um to do that. And in addition yeah. to the cost of living, I think other those those second and third tier towns um, are are have been for decades now coming into their own with their own identities musically and their own music scenes, and it's not just about New York, Nashville, L.A. anymore. Right, right, right. Well, I mean Nashville, if 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 you want to be a, a recording musician, right, you know. But then now, I mean, with technology, with Pro Tools, and you know, I mean, I know drummers who have, you know, their own studio space in their home yeah you know and with and with computers now they send you the track you play over the track send the track back if they like it they paypal you your money yeah yep. my uh my partner on the podcast is is matthew kraus he lives in nashville he started the podcast there and okay. he's interviewed tons of nashville guys who exactly like you said just have their own home studio and you know sometimes it's totally tricked out and sometimes it's pretty basic you know, but right, they, right, they, right, they all right. have that source of income. Yeah. You know um, what I mean? And, and, and like I said, that that's a great thing, you know, for musicians where, you know, you don't, you know, you get a cup of coffee, put on your favorite shorts, your favorite T-shirt, go downstairs <laughs> and play a few tools and get paid. You even have to leave the house. Man, that's the, ugh, that's the way to do it. Yeah. That's, you know what I mean? So, I mean, it, 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 it works hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, you know, but the yeah, but uh, but technology is kind of leveling the play. So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com. Since 1988, Not So Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. I wanted to talk to you about uh, Katrina because in you know last last couple weeks, couple months, there's been Houston, there's been Florida, there's been uh, Puerto Rico. So you know these hurricanes are kind yeah. of on people's minds. Yeah, and we, we just we just missed one a couple uh, a couple of days ago. That's right. It uh, like it hit Mobile, yeah, right? It, but didn't come all, to you. Yeah, and all of a sudden it turned right. It's like yeah. Okay. So I, yeah. I have I have yet to talk to a New Orleans musician about about you know their experience before and during and after Katrina. So take us take us through that time. Well, my story is a lot different than um, most people that I know that was that were actually here hmm. when it happened. I was on tour. I was in Japan. Wow. So. Um, My thing was um, making sure that my wife and my daughter got out of here, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, we, we from New Orleans. I mean, we, you know, 
storm is a storm is a storm is a storm. I mean, <laughs> you know, we, I mean, before Katrina, I mean, you know, people that were really from the one, man, nobody running. You know, you go to the store, you get food, you board up the house. Yep. You know, and, uh, you know, uh, at that time, you know, make sure you got enough DVDs just in case, <laughs> you know, just in case the, uh, you know, power goes out. You can watch them on a the laptop or whatever. Right. And uh, and everything's cool, you know, until the power comes back on and you go outside, assess the damage, clean up, and go on about your everyday life. Mm-hmm. But with this storm, man, when I saw, I was in Japan and we were watching it. When I saw that the storm engulfed the whole Gulf of Mexico, I called him. I said, y'all got to get out of there. Mm. I said, I don't know where you're going. I don't know what you're going to take with you, but you need to get out of there. Mm-hmm. So basically, um, my wife and her best friend, my best friend, uh, my daughter, my best friend's two daughters, uh, my wife's friend's daughter, they all packed up. We had two cars. We took my truck and the van. And uh, everybody got in maybe 24 hours before it hit. Wow. And got in the car, and they drove up north to Shreveport, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when Katrina made landfall, everything was cool. You know, storm passed through. Everything was good. I mean, and I've heard this from people that were actually here. You know, so they went out and, you know, started cleaning up and doing their thing. And the next thing you know, here comes the water, mm. you know, from the levees. Yeah. You know? And um, it's a sickening feeling to be watching CNN and seeing your house underwater. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'll never forget that day that that's something that probably uh, will be in my mind for the rest of my life yeah and then also uh the morning we were sitting there i another that's another japan story i just got back from japan and me and my wife were sitting there having breakfast and we're watching the 9-11 thing i'm thinking it's like a honest Schwarzenegger movie or something on tv yeah and she's like no that's the news i'm like you gotta be fucking kidding me, you know, <laughs> and uh, you know, and well, we know how that story went, right? So, um, yeah, so I mean, I was really sick to my stomach watching my house underwater, right? You know? And uh, so, so when I left, so when I left Japan, I went back to Louisiana, but I met my family in Shreveport, hmm. and. Uh, and I did 16 months in Shreveport. It was like being in jail. Wow. Yeah. So uh, you were out of New Orleans for 16 months. 16 months. I gained about 100 pounds being mm. in Shreveport because there's nothing to do. I mean, there's only so many shopping malls and movie theaters you can go to. Right. There's nowhere, there's nowhere to play music. I mean, there's, there's nothing to do. Wow. Nothing to do, you know. And every once in a while, I would get a call for a tour. You know, I'd go out, tour make some money and then come back and it's like, what the fuck am I doing here? What is this shit about? 
You know, so yeah. I was like I was like a fish out of water, mm -hmm. you know. And but uh, you couldn't return to New Orleans because of no. the damage to your house, the damage to right, the neighborhood. Right. The exactly. So when I actually when it actually lifted, I think it was in October, we were actually allowed to go back in. And uh man, when I got to my house it was oh man. I mean the water line was maybe five feet. Wow. From the walls. Yeah. yeah. Uh I lost four drum kits. Mm. Um one kit made it. Uh so I had one drum set that I took back to um to uh Treeport. I got all of my cymbals out. Uh man, we lost my wife lost a wedding dress, we lost, you know, all of our clothes, um, uh, countless um family heirlooms. Uh I had at that time every C D that I had done, I had a copy of it. I mm. lost all of that. All of that was underwater, it was no good, man. Uh stereo, uh, you know, all of the furniture in yeah. the house, beds, everything. So basically, when we got to Shreveport, we basically started all over. I was going to say, you just had to start from yeah. scratch, right? From scratch, yeah. yeah. And we lived, uh, thank God for the FEMA assistance, we lived in the hotel for maybe about seven months. Wow. Yeah. Man. And then, and then we finally found a house to rent, and then we moved into a nice house, nice neighborhood. It was just in the wrong part of the state. That could move that, like... 20 minutes outside of New Orleans. Right. It would have been great. Right. Know? So, uh, but... Um, so when you did yeah. return to New Orleans, did did you also have to start your career from scratch? Like, what did what did Katrina do to New Orleans music? Well, I mean, it, it, it just... It didn't do anything to New Orleans music. What it did do is it made it harder for the, the musicians to actually return mm. because there was nowhere to live. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, I got lucky because uh, what I was doing was when the city goes kind of halfway back open, we started working with Charmaine again. So we were doing Mondays, mm -hmm. uh, you know, at Snug and we were doing, uh, you know, little gigs here and there. But I would come in. For the weekend. So I would stay in New Orleans Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, I'd be back in Shreveport. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, I was making that drive. I made that drive for almost a year. Back and forth, you know. And then we finally got a little one-bed. I finally got like a little one-bedroom apartment that I could rent. And the next thing I know, everybody was like, screw Shreveport. So we, you know, we had like six of us in one bedroom for, <laughs> for the longest period of time, you know, until we could get things straight so we could, you know, get a, get another house. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, yeah, man. So it was, it was, it was a rough, rough, rough period. Man. Yeah. Really, really rough. And I mean, so you, you were basically part of kind of the, you know, the, the revitalization of, of the New Orleans music scene from the very beginning. Yeah, yeah, I'm giving, of course. I mean, well, I mean, like I said, besides the the time that you know we just weren't allowed back in the city, right? But no, nobody was yeah. at the time, really. Yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. So, so where where is it in in the the progression of that? Like since since Katrina, um, do you feel like New Orleans music and the music scene is is back where it was before Katrina? No. Um, well, the music scene I think is fine. The problem that I have is that um, the culture is a little different because you have a lot of people who left. And relocated and it never came back. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that part of New Orleans is kind of missing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some cultural elements that are kind of missing. and it, But there's some people here that are still keeping the traditions going mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. But you have a lot of people who have moved in that are not from New Orleans. Right. And, and you know, they like it when they first get here. And then all of a sudden it's like they want to change it, you know. Uh, there's a situation with one of the one of the clubs that I play at uh, on Sunday. Every other Sunday, I play with my dad and my it's my trio, Gerald French trio. Mm-hmm. It's my dad on bass and Mike Limba who plays with uh, with uh, George Porter Jr. the running partners, keyboard player. He plays with us. And uh, this guy, uh, his name is Sidney Torres. He moved here, I think, from Texas or whatever. But uh, he was here during the cleanup effort after Katrina. He made a lot of money, you know, cleaning up and stuff. Mm-hmm. But he bought this big house next to this bar that's been there for almost 100 years. And then now, you know, he doesn't want them to play music. Mm-hmm. And the music has to stop at a certain time because, you know, he calls the police and all this other kind of stuff. Yeah. So you got people that have moved here, they like New Orleans, but then they don't like the culture of New Orleans. Right. And I I got an issue with that. Yeah. You know, yeah. My thing is my thing is, you know, if I invite you to my house, this is my house. You know, it's my house. Mm-hmm. This is what I like. This is what I want you. Right. You can't come to my house and make it your house. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, and if I come and visit you in Atlanta, I can't make your house what I have here in, you know, in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. So that's the problem that I have with people, with some people that have moved. And there's some that moved here and they've taken to New Orleans culture like a fish does the water. Mm-hmm. They're great. But then there are others, you know, like I said, they, they fall in love with New Orleans and everything is cool. And then the next thing you know, they're trying to change it into what they wanted to be and it's like nah why would you buy a house next to a club if you don't want to be <laughs> right <laughs> why yeah. would you buy a house in the french quarter if you don't want to hear music yeah yeah that that that's makes no sense to me yeah it's like it, it it's like if you bought a house next to a restaurant and you didn't want to smell food right that's right <laughs> <laughs> or 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 you know or, or it's like you know you don't like nature but you bought a house on the edge of the Grand Canyon <laughs> but you know you know you don't want to see rocks you don't want to see birds you don't want to right really this yeah, this I mean, this know, stuff is here it's been here forever exactly yeah and that's my point you know that's my point you know this is a part of I mean you know New Orleans next year will be celebrating 300 years of existence wow the city itself 300 mm-hmm. years. You know, and you moved here in 2005, 2006. Right. And you want to change something that's been in effect for over 200 years. Mm -hmm. 
I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's part of the American ideal. Like we're getting philosophical now, but you know, part of the American identity is like coming to a place and making it your own, you know, like that's what, that's what the colonies did. That's what people did when they moved out West. Um, right. but the thing they forget is that new Orleans, uh, you know, like Savannah and like my hometown Santa Fe predates the United States. Exactly. Um, exactly. And, exactly. and, you know, there's there's stuff there that lives on that has been there since before we were a country. Exactly. And it's going to continue to live on. Yes. <laughs> Amen. I like that. Yes. Um, yeah. Speaking of traditions living on, you uh, you mentioned the, the Mardi Gras Indians. Um, and you are a part of the, is it the Wild Magnolias? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I used to be a part of the Wild Magnolias. Right now, I'm, I'm just kind of, uh, I'm in limbo. Tuxedo has me so busy, I don't have time to uh, to costume yeah. anymore because I'm so busy booking gigs. And then also, I've been traveling with another band. Uh, it's the Players Ella and Louie Tribute Band. And uh, this band, we did an album a couple years now ago. And uh, it was a tribute album to Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong. Mm-hmm. And we got a Grammy consideration last year. Oh, nice. For the record. Congratulations, so man. Of, yeah, so out of, uh, I think it was 2,500 CDs that were um, submitted for the Grammy in the jazz category, we made the final 10. Oh, wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so you yeah, know, having so, being being too busy with music to to mask with the Indians is a good problem to have. But but talk talk a little bit about about the Mardi Gras Indian tradition and the history of it and and the role that it's played in in New Orleans music. Well, the Mardi Gras Indian tr- tradition goes back um, to the beginning days of New Orleans. I mean, um, I've heard all kinds of stories uh, about the first time that they actually saw uh, black people dress in native costume was in the 1850s or 1860s. Hmm. So uh, basically, the Mardi Gras Indians, just like the Zulu uh, Social and Pleasure Club, the original Illinois, which uh, which, which is another historic um, black club in New Orleans. It was actually founded by guys who worked on the railroad. Hmm the Illinois Railroad. And at that time, you know, they couldn't, of course, you know, black people weren't allowed to participate in organized carnival. So these guys started their own carnival club and they're still in, in, in existence today. I think that club too is over a hundred years old. Mm-hmm. But anyway, with the Mardi Gras Indians, um, you know, it's always been Mardi Gras Indians and the brass bands, you know, that that's a part of the street culture of the Orleans, you know? And like I said, you know, we weren't allowed to participate in organized carnival. We couldn't, you know, belong to any of those clubs. Mm-hmm. You know, so, um, so basically, black men started dressing in Native American costume uh, to pay homage to the Native Americans who helped the Africans escape slavery, hmm. and they still do that today. You know. So, you know, back then they would use, you know, chicken feathers or turkey feathers or whatever they could use, you know, ribbon and whatever to make costumes. But now it's a lot more elaborate. Yes. 
guys, yeah, guys are using, you know, Zorowski crystals. Yep. You know, they're using real rhinestones. They're using real jewels and stuff. And, uh, you know, it's a process that basically takes nine months to a year mm-hmm. to, make a, to make a new costume that you wear. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, very expensive, very intricate. But uh, it's one of the things that we have here in New Orleans that you won't find anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what are the, uh, the there are specific songs and musical forms that that come with the Indian thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about uh, talk about that a little bit and and how it well, kind of infiltrated well, into the rest of New Orleans music. Well, with with the Mardi Gras Indian music, it's uh, it's it's really all based upon call and response, mm-hmm. you know? So you have the chief, he'll give the call and then everybody else has a response, mm-hmm. you know? So that's basically where it comes from. And then also with the Indians, um, you know, later on it got to the point where it was more melodic, but initially it was just uh, like a, like a, uh, a rhythm band, you know? So you would have, uh, tambourines, cowbells, bottles, you know, and then like in the 1970s, my chief Bodalis, he introduced the bass drum. Hmm. So, you know, and a lot of the bass drummers would play the bamboo rhythm. You know, which is what? Drum, which is. Okay. So that groove um you know, actually comes from Congo Square, you mm-hmm. know, when in the days when the slaves were actually, you know, dancing on Sundays, you know. So all of that kind of permeated into what we call New Orleans jazz or what drummers like to call street beat or second line, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, we use that groove a lot. Yes. In New Orleans, you know, but yeah, but it, it you know, it's, it's a West African groove. Yeah. Know? Yeah, so I mean, it's just it's just the same people, but in a different part of the world. Right, <laughs> right, right. Uh, the yeah, the Mardi Gras Indian thing is is something that I've I've been fascinated with for a while. Be, like in part because of Treme, I was such a big fan of that show, and and right, uh, like the, one of the main characters was an Indian, like he was the chief right, 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 of a tribe, right, right. and and uh, it went it went deep into that tradition. But just like. Like you said, the 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 whole thing about making costumes taking nine months to make your costume for that year, and Check that out. hey, look at that! Wow, man, <laughs> I love you. you. Got you got drums stacked up, and right next to it, you got your <laughs> oh, yeah. Man. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, I, I after we're done here, I need you to take a picture of that corner with the oh, gotcha. with, with, I got you. the drums oh, and the oh. costume. And or, or I can or I can send you some pictures of I also send you some pictures with me in it. So. Yes, please. Yeah, that's going to yes. go up on the episode page for sure. Not not a problem. Oh not man, problem. that's beautiful. Not a problem. But yeah, man. I mean, and it's you know those man like uh, like my Indian Red man. That song goes back, you know, over a hundred years. You know? mm-hmm. And uh, Indian Red is what we what we like to call the Indian prayer. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's. Before we get started, before on Mardi Gras day, that's the first you know, we get first get dressed. That's the first song that we sing, and after that, you know, most of the time is Hey Pocky Week, mm-hmm. and after that, then you know whatever whatever the chief chief calls. You know, Bo Dallas used to love to sing My Big Chief Got a Golden Crown. That was his song. <laughs> you know? He loved that song. You know, so uh, 
Yeah, man, it's it's it's, it's a really unique tradition. Uh, and like I said, man, you know, it's, everything's handmade. Yeah. And uh, that's why it takes a while. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I actually, I got some other stuff that I'm working on. So uh, eventually, I, I'm, I'm I'm gonna hit the street again. I'll hit the street again. Good. It's just uh, it's just it's just gonna take me a while. Yeah, yeah. No, it's yeah. it seems like something you need to do because like just. Just, oh, yeah. just looking at you, like you know, you get a little smile, a little glint in your eye when you start talking about going, oh, yeah. going back oh, out yeah. there. And, well, and I'm telling you, man, when you when you put that when you put that suit on, you transform, man. It's yeah, like, yeah, it's, it's 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 a different kind of feeling. It's a different kind of feeling. Yeah, looking pretty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. exactly. Well, cool, man. We're we're gonna be looking for you out there on the street. And uh, oh yeah, yeah. And if uh, well, any yeah. anybody anybody listening is in New Orleans. Just go find Gerald. He's going to be somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> He's going yeah. to be somewhere. Um, yeah. Man, it was it was great talking to you. Thank you for doing this. Oh, man, anytime, man, anytime, man. When Jamal called me, he was like, man, you got to do this. I'm like, no problem. I'll do it. <laughs> Not a problem. Cool. Yeah, man, I, I've, I've done interviews in uh, foreign countries, uh, people, you know, all over the world. So I'm. I'm used to it. I'm getting more and more comfortable, you know, talking and, you know, and people surprisingly are so interested in New Orleans music and New Orleans culture. It's, it really, 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 um, it's gratifying. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. From, from the drum perspective, you know, this is obviously a drum podcast uh, and, Mm -hmm. you know, the more, the more people I talk to and the more music I listen to, the more I see how, how drumming, how so much of modern drumming uh, can be traced back to New Orleans. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I mean, but you gotta understand, man. Uh, you know, one of the most recorded drummers in the world was Earl Palmer. Yeah, you know, from New Orleans. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and uh, man, I got so many idols. Uh, you know, drummers. You know, from here, Earl Palmer. You know, Herman Ernest, um, uh, Freddie Staley. Um, you know, Santa Powell. Yeah. Earl and Riley. Um uh trying to think of some of the other guys. Uh also, you know, Paul and Lewis Barber. Mm-hmm. You know, Saeed Frazier. Smokey Johnson you know, and Smokey Johnson, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, my Uncle Bob, you know, uh, Ernie Ellie, who's still, you know, still active, you know. Yeah. And uh well, that's that's what I mean about that. Like, there are so many guys that that are in New Orleans or that came from New Orleans, and you know, it, like, all, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And that whole that whole tradition was like in the water and in the soil. And and when a guy like Earl Palmer kind of transcends New Orleans and gets into mainstream culture, you know, a lot of people don't realize that that's that's where he came from. You know, he, right, he was right, on, he was right. he was the most recorded drummer ever, and you know, is not known per se for playing New Orleans music, but. That was right. what he was raised on, and that made its way into American mainstream music. Yeah, but just like Earl said, you know, when he when he was a kid, he was a tap dancer. Mm, you know? Yeah, yeah. And and you know that's that's where that rhythm, you know, became innate. You know, mm-hmm. and and that's the thing that that guys don't understand. You know, with, with us in New Orleans, man, it's it's it it's not something that we choose. It chooses us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that chooses us. You know. And uh, I I knew from a kid that this is what I would be doing. Yep. You know, and this is all I've I've ever wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And I've always idolized the cats, you know, that 
I saw my grandfather play with the cats and I saw my dad. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, to be, I tell you another quick story. Yeah. When I was 21 years old, uh, my uncle Bob, he hated playing with some of the older musicians because they played, you know, real tradition. They didn't really swing. Mm -hmm. You know, they played more, you know, straight two beat kind of thing. Right. And uh, so he would call me like, what you doing? I'm like, I'm not doing nothing. He's like, you want to go work the hall for me tonight? I'm like, shit, yeah, I go play the hall. No <laughs> so one night he sends me to go to the Preservation Hall to play for him. So, man, I'm playing and, you know, playing my shit. And Mr. Humphrey on the break, he like, come here, young man. Like, yes, Mr. Humphrey. He said, uh, you sound good. I like the way you play. He said, you got to fix one thing. <laughs> oh, shit, I'm in trouble. Like, Look, I need you to make that bass drum ring. Got to have that bass drum ring. I want it to sound like we outside playing the parade. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I went to knocking on that bass drum. Yeah. The next the next set, he called in he called in the uh, one of the managers of the club, Miss Risa. Risa, this is my drummer right here. We're gonna keep him on Wednesday nights. <laughs> and I got the gig. Yeah. And I played with those old cats until one by one they all died off. Mm-hmm. So and in that band it was Willie Humphrey, Percy Humphrey. Um, Worthy of Thomas called him Showboy. He was a trombone player. Actually, was a drummer first, a trombone player. And then uh, Jeanette Kimball, who played in the tuxedo band with my grandfather. Frank Fields, who played bass in the tuxedo band with my grandfather. Mm -hmm. And Marvin Kimball, who was the banjo player, who was Miss Jeanette's ex husband. That was uh, kind of strange. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, you know, so I learned how to play the traditional New Orleans music with the cats who uh, really, you know, were the ones that revived, you know, were the, the head of the, the revival period, mm-hmm. you know, when Preservation Hall first came on the map in the 60s, you know. So those are the cats that I, I sat behind and I learned how to play this music. Yeah, and I mean, you sound, I, I forgot who said this, but somebody was talking about, you know, <laughs> New Orleans musical tradition and people who were born there and people who grew up there. It's, it, it, it sounds like this is the case with you and with these people you were talking about. It's, it's, it's not anything you really had to learn. Like it was almost like you were born knowing it. You were born, oh, yeah. in, you were born in this place, in this family, into, into this tradition. And, yeah. and it just, you know, became a part of you from your earliest days. Yeah. I mean, and like, and like I said, you know, I, I didn't choose it. It chose me. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, you what? know, and uh, and like I said, even in the way we talk here in New Orleans, you know, you can you can feel the rhythm, you can hear the rhythm. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it is what it is. Yeah. Know? But New Orleans is a special place. I like to call it the the new center of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, man. Well, so when are you coming down? When are you uh, coming down? Man, I, I don't know. I, I don't have any plans to to be there. I was there a few months ago, just overnight on tour. Um, and okay. we we didn't even okay. play in New Orleans. We just stopped there overnight, basically. Um, okay. But uh, but yeah, I'm only like five six hour drive away. So so I'll be there. That's not bad. That's I'll be there bad. soon. Cool. You and cool. me and Jamal will hook it up. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, you come on over, man. I I cook you something. Put something on them bones. Oh. Mm. 
I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready, man. Well, see, that's well, see, that's my other that's my other passion. I love to cook. Me too. Me too. Yeah, that's my thing. That's and man, thing. I I will come down there and you you will teach me a thing or two. I'm ready. Oh yeah. I'm ready I, I to sure, be taught. I, I can show you. I can show you a couple of tricks. Good. Show you a couple of tricks. Yeah. Probably stuff you already got in your ice box, but I, I you know I. I that's a New Orleans word, icebox. Not, not refrigerator. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. No, yeah. like like you did with your uncle and your grandfather. Like I just want to be in the room and watch you do your thing behind the stove. Exactly. There. <laughs> exactly. Man, look, when 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 my grandfather had that club, I used to sit on the floor next to my uncle's floor top. And man, I would sit there and watch everything that he did, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, people today tell me, like, boy, when I, if I close my eyes, I hear Bob. It's like, well, I mean, that that's the source of everything. That's where I started. Right. Listen to my Uncle Bob. You know, he's he's the one. Mm-hmm. Him, Ernie Ellie, Smokey Johnson, you know, uh, Herlin, Shannon. I mean, these are these are the people that kind of molded me mm-hmm. as far as. You know my style, but my but, but primarily it's Bob. Yeah. You know, laid back, it's tasteful, it's swing. Yep. That that's that's my thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's cool, man. You know, and another another quick story before we get off. Yeah. I was on a gig with my dad. This is before I actually started playing. So you know, I used to help my dad with his sound equipment. Uh huh. So, man, we were playing a gig at the Marriott Hotel on Canal Street. I would never forget this. <laughs> so my dad calls me. My dad had a little blue, a little blue Toyota pickup truck. So he called me. He like, man, what you doing? Like, nothing. Well, I'm not doing nothing. What you need, Pop? He like, you got your drums? I'm like, yeah, I got my drums. Pack up all your drums and make sure you put a suit on. I need you to come and work the sound for me tonight. I'm like, okay, well, cool. Oh, man, I get dressed and everything, because at that time, I was playing in church. Mm-hmm. So, put my suit on, packed up all the drums, got everything together, and uh, got to the gig, set up the drums. So I'm sitting out there with the sound equipment, getting everything straight, got everything straight. So, when the band got ready to start, I come and sit behind the drummer. James Black was playing drums with my dad that night. Mm-hmm. So just like I used to do with my Uncle Bob, I'd sit, I sat behind James and I'm watching what James is doing. So man, after about three or four tunes, James grabs my dad and said, George, George. He said, what, Jimmy? He said, tell him stop watching me. He watching me too hard. <laughs> he watching me too hard. <laughs> so my dad was like, then you gotta move. You're making him nervous. I'm, like, I'm trying. I'm trying to absorb what he's doing. You know. I mean, James Black was one of the greatest, not only drummers but just composers mm-hmm. ever to come out of New Orleans. You know. So I'm sitting behind him. I'm. I'm soaking it up. I'm like, ooh, that, that's yeah, that's a little different there. Let me see what's going on with this. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, I had to move because I was. Moving. You're, you're creeping him out. <laughs> yeah, I was creeping him out. Yeah. Uh. All right. Well, if I if I get into your kitchen and you're doing your thing, I'll, I'll try not to vibe you too hard. I'll just. Oh no no no! no, 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 no. Then I'll, I'll, I'll show I'll show you some magic. I'll show you some magic. No problem. Oh, it is magic. I can't wait, man. Yes, indeed, man. Hey, thank well, you. Good talking to you. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much, man. All right, man. Anytime, man. 
keep it alive in New Orleans. We love it. I'm, I'm trying, man. I'm trying. It's beautiful, man. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. All right, man. Bye-bye. Bye. There you go. I hope you enjoyed that talk with Gerald French. Uh, to me, he embodies everything I love about New Orleans uh, musically and personally. Everyone in New Orleans seems to be a people person, and all the music seems to be, as Gerald calls it, people music. And Gerald definitely carries on both of those New Orleans traditions. Don't forget to follow us on social media, share pics and videos of your gigs using the hashtag WorkingDrummer. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us a rating and review there if you please. That helps us grow. Thanks as always to Mike Jackson for his handling of all things technical. Matt Krause is back with you next week. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.